Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am Cindy Howes, and I host this podcast. So nice of you to find us. Before we get into today's guest, Billy Keen, let's talk about us, right? Have you signed up for our monthly newsletter? Mm, well, if you haven't, it's so easy to do and so entertaining. Once a month, you'll get a newsletter letting you know what's going on with Basic Folk. Where can you sign up for this monthly newsletter, you ask? Well, links are in the show notes, or you can go to basicfolk.com and there is a red sign up for the newsletter button. You can sign up right there. If you don't feel like doing that, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at basicfolkpod. We're also a listener-supported podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can head right over to the website, basicfolk.com. Check out the store. We have hand-knit Basic Folk Beanies for sale. You can contribute $5 a month and help the podcast out with your support. We'll keep it going with these honest conversations with folk musicians. Okay, and links are all in the show notes for the newsletter, social media, and to make a contribution. Thank you. Curiosity, luck, and drive are three words that revolve around singer-songwriter Billy Keen. He was born with all three traits, and they are the hallmark of his music, especially on his new album, Oh These Days. The seven-song cycle was written during the pandemic, and right after some very big life changes, 
He got divorced, quit alcohol, and split with his band, the Whiskey Treaty Roadshow. He approached his healing process with an extreme curiosity and a need for simple living. For the last several years, he's been cultivating a simple space to ignite creativity in the western Massachusetts town of Lenox, Mass., where he owns land and a small cottage. In our conversation, Billy talks about his roots in spirituality and his early devotion to music. Keen was born in Australia while his father was working as a minister there. They moved their family to Connecticut when he was two years old. He left his hometown at 18 for college but left for Seattle to work in commercial deep-sea diving. From there, he made his way to Western Mass, where he found himself working at James Taylor's studio. James and his wife Kim quickly realized that Billy was a talented musician and turned into key figures and big-time supporters. Oh These Days, Billy's second album, is truly a meditation on the human experience met with an insatiable love for life and rebirth. We're going to take a listen to the title track from Billy's new album, Oh These Days, and then we'll get to our conversation with Billy Keen on Basic Folk. Oh, these days, they're trying to tear us apart, skies keep getting darker, hard rains are pouring Hey, Billy Keen, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. I'm excited to talk to you, my friend. Let's start at the beginning. Like, can you tell me about the town you grew up in and how it's come to shape you? And how do you hear where you came from in your music? Wow. Sure. Yeah. You know, I kind of left the town I grew up in uh, right after high school. And I do not go back all that often. Can you name it? Sure. Yeah. Mansfield, Connecticut. Um, it is on the eastern side of the state. That's where Yukon is. And I, you know, I went to, I was born in Australia, but my folks moved us to Mansfield when I was really young. So that's, you know, when I think of where I was raised and where I grew up, it's definitely in that country wooded farm setting that is eastern Connecticut. Um, what, wait, back up here, Australia. Uh, yeah. so you were born in Australia. What, why, why? Yeah. <laughs> I've been asking myself that same question. Um, because my father uh, is a minister, was a minister. He just retired a few years ago. But his first placement was in a church in Australia. Uh, long story short, in the, I guess it was the early 80s, the churches in um, Victoria, Australia were lacking in ministers, but they had a bunch of congregation in various areas. And so they sent some kind of uh, scout, literally, to the uh, divinity school that he attended. So my mother and father went to the same master, uh, the same school to get their master's degrees. And there it was. So he ended up, the, the, the two of them went to Australia. Uh, eventually, my sister and I were born, and then they moved back to, uh, to Connecticut when I was, I don't know, two maybe? You know, young. I don't remember. Okay. Were they f- originally from Connecticut? No, they grew up in New Jersey. And, but, you know, so not far. It would take two and a half, three hours to get to where they grew up from where they raised me. But you lived in Mansfield, Connecticut f- 
for your childhood years. Indeed, I did. Yeah. And we're, we're entering into this game that I enjoy with these various interviews because my my journey has been kind of a weird winding one. Uh, but it definitely I guess it did begin there, though. I, I must admit you're the first person that's asked me to uh, kind of describe my that, that place as in any way reflective of what I do now. And I'm not sure that I even would have an answer off the top of my head for that. Mm. Fun to contemplate. Well, that. listen, the fact that it doesn't show up says it all. <laughs> Could be. You know, I like to pretend that these things don't show up, though. I think we all know that they do in one way or another. Like, you know, sometimes we work towards things and sometimes we work away from other things. But either way, it's relative in some capacity, I guess. Hmm. Wow. So growing up, where was the music in your life? Like, how was your family interacting with it? Hmm. What a great, yeah, interacting with it is the exact, it's the perfect way to put that. My my parents both really love music. Neither, nobody was a performer in my family, um, but I connected with music, you know, immediately. My, my, my dad used to, he's a bit of an audiophile. He's always had a really wonderful stereo system. And he used to tell my, my girlfriends back in the day about how they'd kind of place me in front of the stereo when I was a little little guy i just i always connected so deeply with the music it would engulf me and they'd find me like weeping <laughs> so like, you know these beautiful pieces of music but i connected through you know singing playing the piano um writing songs it's always kind of been a part of who i was uh and then in various ways that was in you know involved in my in my life i guess through church in certain ways when i was a kid and then, you know, through school programs, but I'd, I'd always did my own thing too, just kind of playing guitar and the, you know, the usual process by which we learn how to become the performers that we are. Were you into church? Um, not, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, at, especially at this point in my life and actually certainly when I was a kid, I'm, I'm deeply connected to my spirituality. Unfortunately, uh, that doesn't align usually for me with, uh, with religion per se. And I don't know that I made that connection at the time. I mean, when you're, my dad was a minister and as far as ministers go, fairly liberal. Uh, and I think he appreciated the various ways that people approach their spirituality, but because, and I don't know if because or, and, you know, complementarily to that, I, I didn't associate church and religion, which sounds ridiculous, but I, I, it didn't make yeah. that connection. It was kind of like, this is, a thing that we do to be involved in community. Um, okay. We sing at certain times, which I always loved, you know, I'd like write yeah. little duet pieces for my sister and I to perform. And so it was kind of a, yeah, I, I enjoyed that process, but I didn't, I didn't continue a relationship with church or religion after, you know, I, I, after I stopped going with my parents, frankly. All right. You like to play music. You like to listen to music. But what other <laughs> kinds of activities did you like when you were a kid? Like, what kind of kid were you? Like, athletic, studious? Oh man, loud. I wish I was not. I was the kind of kid, my friend, who would take the hour-long bus ride home from school, and I would sing the entire Star Wars theme <laughs> from start to finish. Like that was that was me. I, I was okay at sports up until like my performance like, things. The theme, like the instrumental. Oh, the whole shebang. Yeah. I would kind of like sing the various melodies. It was ridiculous. I, this this memory popped into my head a few days ago. I was talking to some friends about it. Like I'd have the leather, you know, that fake leather of the plastic seats in the school buses. It would like be like imprinted mm -hmm. in my forehead because I'd kind of lean on it 
and then just <laughs> sing to myself to like pass the time. Very strange. Uh, but mm. no, not very great at sports. Um, music was always the thing that felt most aligned with what I was doing. And academically, I admittedly, I, I barely made it out of high school. And, and in fact, at 36, I'm, I'm just finishing my bachelor's degree. I'm working on that mm. kind of uh, in my spare time. More on that later. Yeah, sure. Let's keep going. <laughs> tucked away coming up. Yeah. So, so you started writing and performing before you were a teenager, a tween. Oh Does yeah, well right? before. Yeah, I was. I was young. I mean, it was uh, writing and performing. I'm starting to reckon with these things now, especially after putting this record out and kind of more intentionally honing in on, on what I'm doing as personally instead of say with a with a group or. I, I, it was such a part of my life that I didn't take it. It was nothing special about it. I'd write little harmonies. I remember every year for like a parent's birthday, I'd forget to do anything for them. And so I would like write a song, you know, and into a cakewalk was like a, a program you could use back in the day. Probably still exists. Oh know. yeah. Cakewalk. Right. So no, I'd it like, doesn't. Oh really? It's gone. <laughs> well, yeah. so are the pieces that I write these little classical pieces and like give them to as presents, you know, and, I don't have any of that stuff, but it was just always a part of my life. I mean, I think mm -hmm. four or five years old, uh, I guess, starting to write. Usually not a songwriting came later, maybe in like middle school. I think I started out mm -hmm. writing this melodies and little piano pieces and stuff. So the reason that you started to write songs as a young kid, if you could go into a little bit more of the why and mm. also how do you relate to that reason now? Mm hmm. I relate to that reason now, I'm just going to your second question there, more than I did for a long time. I'm actually coming back home to that original, that, that reasoning. And I think it was because it, uh, I, I don't know if maybe this comes across as somehow melodramatic. It's more like a 4 a.m. around the, the, the bar kind of conversation sometimes. It's a very spiritual thing for me. I don't know how else to explain it. Even, like not necessarily thematically. Like the song could be about anything, but where it comes from for me is a really, mm. it, it, it's kind of an inherently spiritual thing. And that's why I did it initially was to just simply express feelings um, that were bigger than what I could encompass with vocabulary, for instance, um, or, or action. It was just the, the method mm. by which I was able to express these things that felt uh, larger than what I could encompass as, as myself. Right. And, uh, mm. that's a weird thing to try and explain. It shifted for me over the years. You know, I, I've done a lot of things that when I was various professions, I was a commercial diver for a while. And then I remember I would, I would perform at like these random bars down in the South when I was on shore. And it, it, uh, it came from a different place. I could feel how different it was. Like suddenly it was, you know, you're trying to get a party going or something and it's just a different thing equally perhaps as valuable, but just different. And for years I pursued that vein of performance and writing. Uh, and then now, you know, I just don't care <laughs> to do anything that doesn't yeah. feel true and authentic to me. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that's where it kind of comes from. Again, we're not talking thematic. It's not, it, it's funny. I, I, I was talking about this with somebody the other day in regards to this new, I guess the latest record, frankly. And, and they were asking about if there was, they were kind of like treading around the question, like, is there a spiritual theme to one of these songs? And I was like, you know, regardless of what I'm saying, I could be singing about an, an apple or like I could be singing about whatever. For me, 
it tends to come from a place that includes a spiritual foundation. And I think that's where I started when I was a kid. Yeah, there is some kind of spiritual synchronicity that has to happen in Mm. order to do what you do, in order to create. I think so. I don't know that that I don't know that everybody I, I, I know. Who knows, man? I'm barely I'm barely connected enough to my own experience. I'm just struggling to stay in tune with myself, <laughs> let alone presume where other people come up with their art. But yeah, for me, I think you've described mm-hmm. it quite nicely and succinctly. So we can no longer call you a college dropout since it sounds like you have finished your BA. Congratulations. I'm trying. I'm in my last year. Thank you, though. Oh, okay. All right. All right. We won't we won't uh, make early promises. <laughs> that first round of college, um, hmm. what was that like? Why did you leave? That's a great question. I, I had uh, I hadn't intended. I was accepted to the Berkeley School of Music and Kind of on a last okay. minute. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. I decided not to go because, well, I think a lot of reasons um, financial was... You didn't was, go at all? No, no, I didn't. I just didn't go. I, I don't even think I responded to the acceptance letter. Um, the, wow. It was weird. That is a flex. It's not. It's not. I, I, I don't... You, you might be the first person I've ever told that, actually. Um, oh. Again, you're, you're asking these, like, they're suit they're, they they have, they appear as if they're easy questions to answer, but they're not because the, the thought process was interesting. I wanted to study philosophy and journalism. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I, I had this inclination that the music I was making um, or the capacity in which I was making it didn't feel uh, as if it had relevancy to the world at large. In hindsight, I think that was a mistake, but at the time that's how it felt. And I wanted to, I wanted a firmer grasp of, um, the, the, the integrity behind these mythologies in life, right? I'm kind of still seeking mm-hmm. that, but in any case, uh, I ended up despite barely making it, I, oh my God, I think my GPA, it was embarrassing. It was like in the ones, it was like so low. <laughs> That my high school career, if you can call it that, resulted, it was like one essay. For some, it all culminated in this one essay. And I remember this, I had like this conference call and, and the teachers in my, the, whoever the counselor was, right? And it's like, you just, please just write this essay. And uh, I, I remember thinking that was really funny to me, like all these years. And it just came down to this one thing. And so I, I completed it and they were like, well done. Thank God you did this damned essay now walk and get the hell out of here so I did and that meant I was limited right as to where I was able to go to any schools I didn't really apply anywhere the whole thing was very strange uh but I ended up going to uh, Brooklyn College down in Brooklyn I was kind of playing some music down there and and going to school again you know for some reason they let me into this uh pre-graduate philosophy class and um and some interesting writing classes and shockingly you know, I did okay. I remember I did quite well, actually. And they brought me into a couple honors programs. But at 18 or whatever, 19, I had this extreme challenge when it came to anything authoritative. And I felt really constricted. And I also felt unprepared to talk about the things that would come up within the course of 
a philosophy class. I hadn't really experienced anything. And so I left. I left and a, a few weeks later, um, I decided I was going to go travel around Africa for a bit. And so I found this, uh, I remember it was, it was important to me to find a secular organization that was doing work in, in Africa. And I found one in Tanzania. And so I spent a few months hmm. there. We did some work. Uh, I met some people, traveled around for a while. And that was my first college experience, right? And I ended up, I mm. went to UConn for a semester after that, but it was a, another example of uh, my, I just wasn't able to fit into the academic structure, you know? Mm. And that's when I moved to Seattle for a while and ended up pursuing a career in, in deep sea diving. Yeah, what, um, <laughs> a little bit more about that commercial deep sea so diving experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I just, I see it listed in your bio. It seems like a fun fact that people like to glaze over, but can you give me more details? I would love to. I'd love to. In fact, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it was a strange, deep sea diving is a weird career. It's very, I really love metaphor. I always have. And I, I really, for some reason, the living out of a metaphor was it didn't it wasn't lost on me i kind of really appreciated the fact that i was trying to escape from intellectualism i was trying to escape from artistic creation frankly uh which in the, the circles in which i was hanging had this fucking thick sheen of bullshit on it and i don't know how else to put it and i was just mm. so overwhelmed by that notion because for me when i was trying to create anything it was coming from a different place uh, and so I just kind of said, I'm disregarding this. And frankly, I think that's also part of the reason I didn't end up going to music school, um, is I was trying to disregard all of it and just experience living as mm. fully and as frankly on the edge as I possibly could. And it was very self-destructive, by the way, that's a dangerous career. I got injured, which is why I stopped doing it. Um, and it was pretty oh, severe. Okay. So, you know, it was, it was intense. I mean, the drinking, <laughs> the lifestyle was wild. And I think back on those days uh, with regret, you know, admittedly that uh. it was, it was an intense time, a significant learning experience, but quite literally the, you know, you're escaping from aspects of your life by get going into the ocean. You're working underwater, you know, you're, you're, it's just, what kind you. of work would you do? Well, we, we ended up doing a lot of inspection work on like big platforms um, and like it's the oil industry basically, right. They're building all these contraptions there. And most of the, oh, most gross. of these things, yeah, it was pretty gross. They, um, I remember <laughs> I was the only like non-military kind of hippie guy. And I remember this one time we were lifting wreckage from the bottom of the ocean. And one of that, a piece of wreckage was a container that had potentially was holding like tens of thousands of pounds worth of petroleum product. And I remember, I'm not going to name any names. And I think the company's out of business now, so it doesn't matter, but the supervisor was like, we're just going to, we're going to shackle onto the bottom. We're going to come up slow and all the oil is just going to leak out of it. And then we won't have to worry about how heavy it is. And I remember taking a stance against this. I was so Ooh. firm. I was like 20 years old and I was like, Ooh. there, I will never drop a drip of oil. You know, I was, I firmly stood against this. And I remember them looking at me like, just get the fuck out of here. What do you even, but kind of proud of the fact that we didn't do it. We actually reconsidered 
though I doubt it was because of me. I suspect it was because somebody else was like, you, you can't be doing that. But to be fair, right, the EPA there, got involved. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, or some affiliate. They definitely weren't looking all that close. But I would say that experience was interesting because, uh, you know, the, the, the folks that I worked with were really incredible, interesting people, most of whom had very traumatic lives. I think everybody on the ship that I worked on had been in the military except myself, and they had all been kind of on active duty. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of, um, a lot of, well, you know, PTSD exhibiting itself in these various ways. Uh, as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, it's tough to know how to interact with that, but I formed these really amazing friendships. A lot of destructive stuff too, but uh, lessons that I've carried with me, certainly. Um, to today. Yeah. I turned 21 at, at the bar that I'd been drinking at for the previous year. So I guess I was, yeah. Early was 20s. Early. I think I was 19 or 20 when I went to dive school, 20, 21, 22 when I was diving professionally. And what year was that? Like how many years did you do that? I guess that would have been, is it 07 into to like 09? And that's mm-hmm. when I was on a job, cut my thumb up pretty darn good. And then, uh, you still have it though. Two I got things. it. Look at that. And they're both working. Thank you. <laughs> of course I messed up my hand working on a garden fence. But yes, the other one, the other one's working just yeah, fine. Yeah. Looking good. Thank you. Uh, so two thousand nine, that's about when you made it to Western Mass and, and uh <laughs> were hired in Kim and James Taylor's studio. Uh sort of. So the producer that it's kind of a weird twisty story, but when I was Offshore, I got a note from a friend of mine that had gone to music school uh, and wanted to produce a record for me. I was always I was doing this very folky like solo thing at the time. And uh, the agreement was when my job is over, because when you go offshore, you don't know how long it's going to last. Right. It had already been like, you know, however long. And uh, we said, all right, well, let's head out to California, I think is where we were aiming at um, and just find a place to live and make this record. In the meantime, he got a job with James and Kim Taylor. Uh, and so he ended up, you know, he needed to come to the Berkshires for that job. And so I ended up here. And I, you know, it was it was very sporadic. I'd never been here before. I just got in my Subaru. I had surgery after the injury. I think it was the day after the injury. And then the next day, I got in my Subaru with like a big old trash bag's worth of clothes and uh, my guitars. And I drove up here and I never went back to the apartment. In fact, I, I had a boat down there that was such a piece of shit. We had to change the distributor out like all the time. And I think I, I left the boat <laughs> in the parking lot of the apartment complex. It was just like, all right, we're moving, we're moving on here. Uh, and then I came to the Berkshires. We never found out. Then we, we, we never know. One of these days, somebody's gonna be like, I still have that. It was a, it was a fun, it was a 1987, 19 foot open bow, little speedboat. We'd take it around the bayous down there. It was a lot of, you more up to the bar, you know? It's kind of fun. Anyway, but then we got up to, uh, to the Berkshires and then James and Kit, you know, they heard me, they heard my music and, and, um, I actually had kept the apartment in Louisiana at that time expecting to go back, but James was very supportive of what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I just, I just stuck around, frankly. Yeah. What did you learn from your experience with James Taylor that you continue to apply to your career? You know, getting back to the root of things, you know, loving playing music, 
is, is the thing that I took from him. First of all, I actually, there's something else, which is that being friendly to people is very important. He, I don't know that you can be more successful than James Taylor. And I also don't know that you can be more modest and friendly. Um, an amazing, cool. an amazing guy. And, in, you know, he, uh, he played, he performed with me. I think one of the first shows I did up here, I did a couple songs with Kim and then James came and we sang a song together and I, I, you know, I, I thanked him for it as, as you do. And he said, you know, you're so welcome. He goes, I just love playing music. It's like, well, that's interesting. And it really stuck with me because there's all this jibber jabber in the industry about how, you know, it changes people, you know, no, he just yeah. loves playing music and that's what he's doing. And after, over the years, I mean, I've met so many people. I did a show some years ago with Yo-Yo Ma and he said the exact same thing. I remember we had done a benefit mm -hmm. show together after actually during 2020. I don't know if you recall this, but Yo-Yo took, he like took the mantle of world leadership. When, when some, when our politicians were failing us in a lot of ways, he, came forward and was spreading this unbelievable message of compassion and hope. And so we were backstage at this thing. And I, I was like, I, you know, hope you don't mind my saying, but I, we recognize this. You're, you're really stepping up for all of us. And, and I appreciate it. And I also, I asked him, you know, where he, how he felt about it, basically, you know, where, where does he get that motivation? And he, again, he said, you know, honestly, I just love playing music. I'm a musician. And so when there's crises, mm. uh, when there's trauma, I, that's what I bring to it. Anyway, James was very much like that. Um, and I, yeah, I, I certainly take that with me. Something that I've noticed in your music is that there's this irresistible rhythm in a lot of your songs. So what is your relationship to the beat and how do you see it coming out in your songs? Mm. Yeah, I was a drummer first for a while. A lot of times I will actually begin with an intentional rhythm, which, by the way, if there's like novice songwriters on here, don't do that forever. Like, I think you have to you've really got to mix up your your processes. But yeah, rhythm is crucial to to the way that I write and the way that the songs go. You know, I think I work with Brian Cantor a lot these days. He tours with me uh, and he is kind of the quintessential drummer in terms of in my opinion, right? In terms of being able to hone in on the, on the groove that most effectively complements the song. So often I'll bring something to the table as a demo and I'll have put together a very basic rhythm to showcase where I'm hoping the, the groove's gonna fall. But for many years, I, I found it was very challenging to, uh, to find people that were able to work in that way, you know? Because if you write something with a particular rhythm in mind and then, and then a, and a performer comes at it from a different angle, Every now and again, it's a better angle. A lot of times it's not, and <laughs> it's just like very frustrating. Uh, but yeah, that certainly is a huge aspect to it. On this latest record, um, most of what we have in there is basically what the songs were. But my the wonderful producer, James Wallace, um, I'm trying to think of which tune, and Fresh Flowers actually, with one of the singles off that record, uh, he sped up, he had this really wonderful idea to speed up the song like quite a bit, 20, 30 BPM. I forget what, what the specific thing was. So that groove inherently changed a lot, but we still landed cool. on something that felt so warm and compelling. Hmm. Uh, in my research, I noticed some reoccurring themes and they, I came up with three words and Ooh. it seems like 
maybe the three keys to your success. And when I say success, I don't mean like commercial success. I just mean like success as a human being. So I wanted to see what you thought of this takeaway. The three words are curiosity, luck, and drive. <laughs> right on. Okay. I, 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 I embrace those three words. Curiosity, luck, and drive. Yeah, okay. Curiosity is, yeah, that, that would, as an umbrella word, you probably could have left it at that and I would have been content. I, I, I'm incredible. Yeah, my curiosity That's why it drive. was first. I love it. You're very astute, my friend. It's, um, there's nothing I'm not curious about. I'm curious about you. I, I want to ask questions about you right now. I mean, I, 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 I don't, and I, I'm proud of that, I guess. It, it's taken me a while to like be able to acknowledge parts of myself that, that I'm really proud of, but that's, yeah, I'm incredibly curious. I'm sitting amongst many books on my desk here, uh, all of which have, you know, various levels of academic rigor or otherwise. And, you know, I, I love diving into anything and everything. It, it's so exciting to me to learn about um, the esoteric nature of all kinds of random things. People are so interesting to me. The, the, the patterns that exist behind these things, you know, uh, I think it's funny that the more curiosity that we can express in life, um, I think we start to recognize mythology for what it is. That's, that's kind of an inherent part of that, which, uh, you know, they curiosity killed the cat. One of my least favorite sayings of all time. I, I just, it's ridiculous to me. Like be curious, you know, uh, learn what the root of something is. Scrape off the patina to find out what the wood grain looks like, you know? There's so many aspects of living that, uh, that are the garb, you know, that are the, um, it's like the, the residue of somebody else's living, like get rid of it, explore, dive in what, what, what's in there, you know, what's in here. I, 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 it's compelling. And then drive certainly drive is one of those things though, that can go either way, you know, uh, it's, you know, don't drive it, yourself off a cliff. That would be a bummer. Yeah, that would be. A, yeah. Or don't drive other people off a cliff. Don't drive people away. Totally. Don't, you know, when drive becomes overly ambitious, you know, there's there's that fine line. Why are we doing it? To drive without knowing why. And I don't even care about where as much. I'm the kind of person when GPS says, do you want to save seven minutes? I'm like, fuck you, add 20 minutes. Let's make this more interesting. You know, <laughs> it, drive is wonderful when you have a purpose behind why you're putting the pedal down. That's something I have to reflect on all the time. You know, it, why am I, I, before we put this record out, I've already got two records written. I'm like, what, you know, let's go, let's get to the studio. And I have to remind myself like, well, okay, let's let the tea bag steep a little bit before we start sipping on it. You know, hmm. what was the third one? Luck. Yeah. Luck. Luck is everywhere, man. I, uh, I, I want to acknowledge how much luck has been in my life. And I also want to acknowledge uh, how many fucking failures I've been involved with because there's many, you know, I, uh, I guess that's another aspect to drive that comes in handy when we rely on luck. I mean, you're, you're doomed. It doesn't make any sense. Like being prepared for opportunity, I think is, uh, where I fall on, on that. Um, luck. I don't, I don't really believe in things like luck. I don't really believe in anything. I don't have like a belief system per se, so I guess I can't say that I disbelieve in it, but opportunity comes in all kinds of ways. Uh, and I think that being ready for it is kind of the key. And then 
when you're ready, when you kind of focus on readying yourself, then anything looks like an opportunity. You know, suddenly, you know, you get asked to do something and because you've prepared yourself, now you recognize it for the opportunity that it is, where otherwise, if you're stuck in this internal uh, battle or something, uh, then opportunity can actually seem very much not like luck. It can seem a lot like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a challenge or something like this. But I'm impressed by these three words. They're diverse and it causes me to, to <laughs> contemplate quite a bit. Now I'd like to offer you to choose your own adventure at this point in the interview. How comfortable are you talking about your sobriety? Uh, Yeah, I'm very comfortable talking about it as long as people don't think I'm some kind of spokesperson. We actually had to, well, I'll let you ask whatever questions you'd like and I, and I, I will be as open as I can be, which is very open. Okay, so this might be a boring one for you, but is mm. it possible to give an overview of what alcohol has looked like in your life? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, it, it became quickly a part of my identity, which is a challenging thing to sift through. It be Yeah, it's hard to explain. I kind of really embraced this drunken, carefree attitude uh, and I embraced it for a lot of reasons that I probably would require a team of psychologists to figure out. And I'm by no means that intellectually gifted to be able to sift through my own psychology. But it was a way in which I decided to re- it was almost an active decision. This is how I'm going to relate to the world. Uh, you know, I'm going to mm. numb the suffering that I experience with this thing. And that's just what it was. It's no more or less than that. And I, it, it became such a part of my life that, you know, I performed with, and I love these dudes and I, I play with them still to this day when, when we have, you know, shows, but I, I performed with a band called the Whiskey Treaty Roadshow for like eight years. Uh, it literally was a part of my identity. And, and then the insidious part of that, which I didn't recognize till later, is that it ingrained itself in my relationship with music. And so, oh. yeah, it was, it was a problem for me. So when I... I don't know when these years would be, but some years ago, you know, before COVID, when I when I started recognizing that I didn't like this thing that I'd created, this mythology about myself, it became really challenging to separate that then from my music. And so it took a while um, to be able to isolate those two things, which was a problem. I think I I think I read that you decided to quit alcohol. It was like. January of 2020, yeah. you know, and like the, pan- <laughs> the pandemic hit and in March of 2020 and I remember drinking so much. You know, like <laughs> I, I was on that train of like, I'll have a bottle and then, you know, my partner, you know, she'll have a bottle and then maybe we'll have another bottle. You yeah. know, it, it, and I, what was it like for you to go through a global emergency mm. just given up alcohol. Well, uh, for a fuller context, I'd also just gotten divorced. had just lo- had to move out of my house. I was living in a new apartment and I had decided to split away from the whiskey treaty to do my own solo project. So cool. Lot. Lots of good stuff happening. Lots of good stuff. Uh, and additionally, I would add, the Whiskey Treat and I had been courted by this record label out in L.A. that then did not decide to move forward. So we had like all these 
really weird upheavals happening. Um, and then, yeah, January 1st, 2020, it wasn't, it wasn't like a new year's thing. I think I had just gotten hammered and I was like, God damn it. I'm like so fucking hungover now. And I, I wasn't writing as much as I wanted to. And finally I realized that I need to separate my music from drinking. And, and that's what did it. I was like, I'll ruin my life. Sure. What I won't do is ruin my creation ability. So, you know, mm. music literally was the reason, um, why I stopped drinking and then I, you know, I didn't, I'm not like a program kind of guy. I think it's amazing if people are whatever, you know, I'm not. And I, and I also don't care that I slipped up a bunch of times. Like, I mean, a month later I was playing a music festival on a fucking cruise ship. It was an absolute, like, I love the production company, whatever. Please bring me back on. You know what I mean? But I just got hammered. It was like, you're surrounded by 3000 music fans and you can't, you know, everybody's wasted all the time. I'm like, Jesus this is crazy. I just quit drinking a month ago. Uh, so, you know, one of those nights I spent in a complete oblivion and I don't know, I just don't, I don't judge myself for that, frankly, but those, there were a couple of those times, but for the most part, I was, I knew at the time how grateful I was to be clear of that burden for the time that became some of the most important time in my life. I, I needed, I'm a bit of an isolated person anyway, right? So I, I always hesitate to say this because there was so much trauma involved in that time, so much death, so much pain. And in my life, it was incredibly voluminous. It was a vastness to it. Oof. Good word. Right? It was, it was this open space and when we're in these open spaces, much like when you're diving, you kind of have two choices. You can become constricted and terrified, or you can open yourself to it. Drinking would have caused me to become constricted and terrified. And I, I thank goodness mm. that I was not in that place. And I, I, I truly was, I relinquished myself to the vastness of the unknowing. And I'm really grateful for it. So it wasn't hard. It was actually, besides the few times where I thought, and I could probably count them I probably four times between then and, and like over the first six months, I was like, fuck it. I'm doing another Facebook zoom for a hundred people. And I hate performing this way. I'm just going to get drunk. You know, that happened once or twice, but, uh, mm -hmm. for the most part, truly, uh, my friend, it was, it was, it was not only easy, it was kind of like natural and it felt like, uh, a gift. It's time. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, exactly. Something that sprung out of your sobriety was a love of simple living. And I read in your interview with Kim Taylor in The Bee, which is a Berkshire <laughs> magazine, you were talking about how important your surroundings were when making your new record, mm. Oh These Days. So what did your home, your cottage in Western Mass, can we say the name of the town? Sure. Yeah. I live right in Lenox, which is like the center of the... Right by Tanglewood? Yeah. What did your cottage do to help facilitate your creativity? Mm. Well, personally, when I'm writing, the environment has a lot of impact on that. And I kind of tried, I curated this cottage to, to kind of amplify that energetic vibration which was a really weirdly, I don't know why I just said it that way, but that is kind of how it feels like. I mean, there's no... We are on that wavelength. All right. That's why. Yeah, I think so. We're you know what I'm talking about. Cosmic wavelength. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, but in a real way. Like, and I mean this sincerely. When you uh, surround yourself with 
fewer things, uh, fewer distractions, I, I think that you're able to harness some of that energy more directly. Uh, and so that's where, that's the environment in which I wrote it. And the songs are, they came from a place of really absolute authenticity, uh, which is kind of all I have these days, you know, which is a lot, by the way, but it's what I have. And, uh, and so I felt proud of that. And the space um, helped su sustain that, I think might be a good way to put it, you know. Earlier, you mentioned that somebody was trying to get you to talk about how your song was about spirituality, <laughs> and I am going to do the same thing. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. The song Halo, according to your press release, it says you explore spirituality and faith. And this is a direct quote, rejecting the parameters of dogma, control and judgment for a more forgiving, imperfect outlook on humanity, which sounds familiar from when we were speaking earlier about this. You are almost done with your BA, which is in Buddhist psychology. So how does that impact your outlook on faith and humanity? How did it impact the song Halo? Mm. Mm. Um, well, first of all, I'd have to the word faith doesn't come into my life all that often. And uh, much like the word belief doesn't come into my life all that often. And I think I don't experience spirituality as being something that is learned. I experience it as being something that it's, that's experienced. I think it's interesting that a lot of times, at least within the societies in which I grew up, spirituality is introduced to people through the church. So in other words, or a church or a synagogue or a temple or whatever it is, but it's coming through this prism of doctrine or it's coming through this prism of a requirement of faith or something. Uh, now, when I'm walking through the woods, which is a thing that I do all the time, uh, when I enter into a place that feels sacred, for instance, that is a direct and real and and and. and and an experienced phenomenon for me. Now, what that means, I have no fucking idea. I, you know, connect connection is a word that maybe makes sense. Or uh, again, mm -hmm. that that notion of vastness, that that understanding of both filling a space and being a part of it. That lack of dualism, that that lack of inherent separation that we're taught exists doesn't exist anymore. And to me, that's spiritual. Mm -hmm. So when you exist in that place, I don't, I just don't fucking care anymore. Like I'm, I'm very interested in learning about religion, for instance, because I think it's a little bit like the scaffolding on a building. Like sometimes it's helpful to have parameters within which you construct an experience. And I think forming a, uh, I think forming an intentional relationship with one's spirituality is important. But I don't know that it's important to begin there. And I think a lot of times it ruins people's connection with it. I mean, how many I, I've met, I meet so many people who have had incredibly traumatic experiences with their religious uh, life, like incredibly, like shockingly traumatic to the point where they don't even want to expose their children to any sense of spirituality because they don't want to harm them. The word harm and spirituality, how did that even get entwined? But it is. And it got entwined right. because people fucked it up. So I just don't have time for it. I don't know what to say. I love so many people and have such deep respect for people who practice religion in ways that are not judgmental or unnecessarily, you know, 
dogmatic, but unfortunately, I'm not sure that we exist in a place in which that's necessarily the norm. So as you can see, I kind of, I don't like to get boxed in in anything. And so that's kind of why I, I skirt around it. But, <laughs> but I don't, Halo is pretty straightforward, you know, it, it, I don't need it when I'm sitting there and I wake up and I'm feeling just incredibly grateful to just literally to be alive, my friend. I've, I've done things in this life that are not, that coming through it alive doesn't necessarily, it's not a guarantee. And we're here, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. I, I don't, we don't need to say more than that to embrace the fact that there's a spiritual angle to it, I don't think. So that's kind of where I come from on it, you know? The title track, Oh These Days, as far as, as I've read, was written about the Ukraine-Russian war based on a post from your friend, the photojournalist John Stanmeyer. Yeah. And he, I looked at his feed and his photos are beautiful mm. and he has these really long poetic captions. I can't remember. He started it off with like a different caption that was close to Oh These Days. Um, and I was like, oh, did Billy get it wrong? It's like, oh, these years or something like very similar. It's like escaping me. But then he wrote this very long, beautiful post. And then at the end, it said, oh, these days. So I'm not surprised that you were moved within minutes to write this song. It sounds like an intense experience. And I I don't know if you've ever heard Peter Mulvey. He's a great singer songwriter. He has these, he has this phrase called like God songs. Like mm. you only get a few God songs in your career. He's like, Aeneas Mitchell has several. Bob Dylan has several. I have one, you know. So this song, Oh These Days, kind of sounds like a God song where, you know, and it could be God, little G or God, big G, whatever you want. But it's like, just sounds like a lightning bolt strikes you. Mm. And then you have this incredible, beautiful song. Could you expand a little bit more about the process for that, oh, these days? Mm. Yeah, sure. And in fact, the process is not dissimilar. Every song in this record kind of came out, which, again, if there's like new songwriters on this podcast, that ain't how it works a lot of times. But for, for whatever <laughs> reason, in this, in these songs it did, that one, yeah, oh, these days, first of all, my friend, poetic license. I didn't get it wrong, but I preferred oh, these days, oh, these years. In any case. No, he ended... He ended uh, the post with, oh, I see. oh, you're saying that you re you reversed it. Okay. Anyway. Uh, I'm not going to hold you to that. <laughs> oh, please. It's all good. It, it, he, um, oh my God, what a beautiful person he is. I, John and I, I worked on John's farm when I first moved to the Berkshires as a handyman. So when I was recording that record years ago. Of course you did. <laughs> right. So he hired me and I was, uh you know, digging rock, I was running a tractor on this farm. We just became, we became friends pretty close. And he is an incredible wanderer, a journeyer. Photojournalism is his art. Uh, but as a person, he's, he's a seeker. He's a compassionate, amazing. He's kind of a genius. There's, I've, I've been lucky enough to be around in my time, as I'm sure you have some artists that I would put in that level that just strike me as being of a genius quality. Not many of them, by the way, uh, but he mm. is absolutely unquestionably in that realm, in my opinion, in the way that he captures the essence of a situation in an image shatters me. Oof. And when I saw that post, so 
Miro, who stayed at my house, was a fan of my music. We never met each other, but he, he, he lived he lived in Ukraine with his wife and his child, who at the time was, I think, four years old. And when the invasion happened, I had reached out to him and I just said, hey, I hope you're OK. You know, it's as simple as that. And uh, he was not OK. He was kind of like putting backpacks on and they were hopping onto a train and that they didn't know where it was going and trying to get out of out of where they lived. And then John's post came up. So it was all very much like at the same moment. And then Peter Mulvey is a beautiful dude, by the way. We just met each other at a festival a few, maybe last spring or something. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. He's the best. In any case, if it's a God song, Little G, Big G or otherwise, it, it did just kind of come. And it's a general tune. I mean, you know, it's not, it's less storytelling and it's more, I'm trying to evoke an emotional positioning. It's a bit like how we'd use... I don't know, like a mantra or something, uh, you know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like holding space musically, I think was the idea mm-hmm. with that. And I wrote it and sent the demo, you know, to, to Miro and he ended up, he'd sing it for his kid, you know, before he went to sleep at night and, uh, John kind of connected with it in a big way too. So yeah, that's, you know, that's how that one went down sitting on my couch in that bathrobe that mm-hmm. has, is now on the cover of the, <laughs> of the record. <laughs> Epic album cover by the way thank you all right billy we got one more thing to do and it's a lot of fun so i hope you're up for the lightning round oh fun yes all right here we go billy keen who is your favorite guthrie oh man uh sarah lee oh there she is hey puddles i think we're okay all right Interested in this one, sober person. <laughs> what are you drinking before you go on stage? Mm, usually tea, usually a cup of tea. And by the way, I smoke a lot of weed. So I, I always, I feel bad when people say that I'm sober. I feel like it's sending this message out to other, like, yes, clean. And I maybe at some day I'll be that person. I'm not that person as of today, <laughs> as of a few hours ago. But um, is there like know. a is there like a term that people can use like? Cali sober. Cali sober. Okay. Like <laughs> Willie Nelson, I think used that. You know what? Let's call it Billy sober. Let's just let's just coin that. That'll be. <laughs> Where is the best swimming spot in Western Mass? Oh my God! I'm not going to tell you, but I will show you sometime. Uh, the okay. one that the one that I will share is if you're going down through Great Barrington. Route 41, and then you hang a right, and you start going to Sheffield, there's this gigantic cornfield on the left, and you'll see a sign that says no parking, and you'll park right in front of that sign. And then you're gonna walk (laughs) down the hill on the right side of the corn, and it goes through the woods in this beautiful little unmanicured trail. And here's the secret, is you don't stop at the first couple's watering holes, right? You keep going down and down the river, and eventually there's an oxbow, right? And it goes around to the right. That is one of the most beautiful spots. But the, 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 we're very protective of our swimming spots up here, you know, because the tourist season hits yeah. pretty heavy in the summer. You got to watch out. Would you please tell us about your hair care routine? I've become my grandfather. I have like one bar of soap and I just use that and same. And you just lather. It goes everywhere. <laughs> it goes on my face. It goes on my hair. It goes on my, my booty. It goes everywhere. It, it's just one bar of soap. I don't know that I need more than that so far. Okay, Grandpa, what is your toothpaste <laughs> brand? Tom's. Okay, here's the last question. Where's the most beautiful place in the world? Oh my goodness, right here with you, my friend. Ah ha ha. 
I'm not kidding. I, I, I mean that sincerely. There are so many places that I just are just breathtakingly beautiful. And, and every time, and I don't mean this to be weirdly, it's not like an adage, it's not like, you know, it's just the truth that um, I just feel so blessed to be, whenever I'm lucky enough to stumble into the present moment with myself, that is just so beautiful. And, and you've brought me there during this conversation. I appreciate it. That's awesome. Thank you, Billy. Well, thanks for being on the podcast and congrats on the new album, Oh These Days. Thank you. It's out now. We'll meet in person. I'm moving to Maine at the end of the year, so I'll be a lot closer. No way. Where in Maine are you going? Portland. Oh, dude. Yeah. I'm there all the time. I play at one Longfellow all the time. I'm up there quite a bit. I would love to see you. And uh, thanks for having me on your podcast, really. It means a whole ton. I love what you guys are doing. And uh, I look forward to seeing you up in Portland when you get up there. I'll help you move even. How about that? This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to share it with a friend, please do. It's always nice to reach out to friends. Maybe you could share it with your neighbor who is about to sell his house and was hammering away while you were trying to record the intro for your podcast and had to do a couple of takes because there was hammering noises and drilling noises in the background, you can send it to him and say, look, look what I was doing while you were drilling and screwing and plastering and doing all sorts of things. Anyways, good luck to you, sir. Send it to that guy. Okay, thanks for finding us and listening all the way to the end. You're so special, and we love you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.